You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? Barely holding it together, Leslie. How about you? I'm doing the same. You know, hard to complain. The wife is back next week. It's been almost two months. I'm very excited. That is crazy. I I feel like someone should do a podcast about how complicated and difficult it can sometimes be to make a television show, because goodness, who knew? Exactly. Well, in a bit of a programming uh, note, not that we don't want to keep talking about my lovely wife, you can go back and listen to our terrific interview with Pamela Adlon that that dropped earlier this week about the series finale of Better Things. It's a fantastic 80-minute deep dive into the show and its ending, and it's just incredible. Like, Pamela Adlon is just never not a great conversation. It is a true blast, and uh, we mention it all the time at the end of the podcast about coming and saying hi to us on Twitter, letting us know what works and what doesn't work. Uh, definitely... We always love to hear feedback about those standalone episodes, and we are more than happy to get your feedback, suggestions, whatever, on future showrunner spotlight standalones that you might want to see. We can't guarantee that we would actually do it, but we always like to hear who people want us to talk to, because, you know, why not? Yeah, because this is for you. This show is for you guys. So, Speaking of the show, this is episode 167, Dan. Hard to believe we've done this so many times, but we have a tremendous interview with Dustin Lance Black to discuss FX and Hulu's Under the Banner of Heaven. That's coming up. But before we get into all of that, we're going to start where we usually do. Headlines. Number one. Leading off the week's top headlines, Pete Davidson will star in a series called Bupkiss, a scripted comedy that is based on his life and from executive producer Lorne Michaels. Davidson will play a heightened version of himself in the series, which landed at the NBC Universal back streamer after a multiple outlet bidding war. Dan, this is a good one for Peacock to have. It's certainly a high profile one. I think people have definitely been wanting to see more of Pete Davidson, except for the people who hate Pete Davidson, which, you know, they exist on Twitter as well. Um, I'm also happy with any TV show called Bupkis because it gets more Yiddish into the vernacular. And for more people talking about getting Yiddish into the vernacular, you should definitely be sure to listen to the aforementioned interview with Pamela Adlon, where unfortunately I was frozen, got stage fright and couldn't think of anything I wanted to sing in Yiddish. I apologize once again to Pamela Adlon, uh, to my parents and to all of my boobies and Zadies who all felt deep shame as a result of that. Apologies. <laughs> apologies to you too, Leslie. Hell, I can apologize well, to everyone because I don't, you don't know, need to apologize. I don't know that anyone was actually all that stressed, but I still feel bad. But yeah, and, this is a big, it's a good pickup for Peacock considering they really do need water cooler programming. And we certainly know Pete Davidson is a tabloid favorite. Yeah. I mean, this, this is once again, is the same thing we say about Peacock all the time is that, you know, the, the sort of the breakthrough scripted programming continues to be a thing that they need. Um, They've had some that have come close and some that feel like they're right on the verge. And maybe the second season of Girls 5 Evo will do it. And, you know, who knows? But also maybe it won't. So, yeah. And also it's a it's a great brand extension because guess what the backbone of Peacock is? Old episodes of SNL. Oh, I thought you were going to say Yellowstone, but OK. <laughs> I mean that, too, but that's a whole other story. Because <laughs> because that doesn't necessarily go with the same demo. But what do I know? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Why? Hey, guest I, starring next season on Yellowstone, Pete Davidson. No, I would never watch uh, Pete Davidson Western if the 
auspices were correct and preferably if it were under 90 minutes. But, you know, that's just my preference. <laughs> Continuing with headlines. In series pickups or other series pickups, DC Universe turned HBO Max favorite Harley Quinn is getting a spinoff with Noonan's, a 10-episode adult-leaning, and if you watch Harley Quinn, you probably could have guessed that part, uh, which will focus on Matt Oberg's Kite Man. The series hails from Harley Quinn executive producers and former TV's top five guests, Justin Halpern, Patrick Schumacher, and Kaylee Cuoco. And you can go back and listen to our fantastic interview with, with the, the Harley Quinn showrunners back in episode 47 from November 2019. That was 100% done in person at an office that is no longer part of the Hollywood Reporter anymore. <laughs> that, that actually, if you're being technical, was multiple uh, Hollywood Reporter offices ago. Our boxes of stuff have moved from one office to an office we were never in to an office that we're currently rarely in. So, yes, definitely. Good times back in the day. In casting news, Danielle Deadweiler, who most recently starred in Station Eleven and was seen in Watchmen, will star in Demimond for HBO and J.J. Abrams. The drama marks the first series that Abrams has created and written since Fox's Fringe in 2008. Phew, I feel like we've been talking about that show already for a, a fairly long period of time. Or oh, yeah, it's been the existence of it. Almost since 2008. I mean, this this thing's been around for, what, three years, four years? Yeah, but maybe he's going to make a TV show. Maybe he's gonna, we're actually going to see a, J, a new J.J. Abrams show that he that came from his brain after landing at HBO with a bidding war, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. But he's doing a bunch of things, including making a new Star Trek for Paramount. So hopefully this is, you know, J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot saying, hey, you know, there's a new boss over here at Warner Brothers Discovery. Maybe we should actually focus on something to come from our $250 million overall deal that we signed a couple years ago. And Daniel Deadweiler was very, very good in Station Eleven. So happy to see higher profile roles coming her way. That's the way things are supposed to work. Continuing along the casting line of things, Apple has firmed up season two cast for the after party. With Sam Richardson and Zoe Chow returning, along with Tiffany Haddish, the former two, minor surprise, people weren't sure how many people were actually going to be coming back. New franchise faces include Elizabeth Perkins, Zach Wood, Poppy Lou, and Hulu's Penis alum, Anna Conkle, all favorites, among others. Elsewhere, with broadcast upfronts around the corner, CBS has locked in Blue Bloods for a, its 13th season. In other renewals, Freeform has renewed Single Drunk Female for a second season and handed out a series order for a dramedy called While You Were Breeding. And Peacock has renewed Josh Gad and Isla Fisher rom-com Wolf Like Me for a second season. I like Wolf Like Me. Not a huge amount, but I like it. It's good to have things that are likable. And I bumped into Josh Gad at a recent Dodger game, and, and we together bemoaned the loss of Disney Plus's Beauty and the Beast prequel series. Well, fine. And I once stood in customs line with Isla Fisher and Sasha Baron Cohen and their kids. It was uh, they, they had special global access or something, and they got through much faster than I did. But not, you know, pulling rank or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, last week we talked extensively about all of last week's Netflixy stuff, and we certainly could have done a full segment this week also, because heaven knows that story has not stopped. Uh, and if you look at these stock prices, oh yeah, they continue to go down, though it no longer has quite the same Cliffs of Dover look that it had before, because it's become more of a steady fall off as it goes down. So... 
Anyway, uh, and at Netflix, and this probably really has nothing at all to do with any of the other stuff, because Netflix just likes canceling stuff. The streamer has canceled Racing Dion after two seasons and the comedy Pretty Smart after one season. And some producers have begun to speak out about the changing culture at the company. Yeah, and if you haven't read the great Netflix story by our friend of the five and colleague, Kim Masters, it is a must read fabulous read about what's going on inside the culture of Netflix, told by the people inside and, and those who have business presently and formerly at the streamer. It is a lot of the stuff that we've talked about and a lot of people articulating stuff that you might speculate about, but it's even stranger to hear it actually said out loud. Yeah, a lot of it going back to the ouster of Cindy Holland back in 2020. So lots going on. Great read and fantastic work as usual by the brilliant Kim Masters. And wrapping up headlines, American Gigolo showrunner David Hollander has been fired from the Showtime drama and lost his overall deal with Paramount Television Studios following an HR investigation. The executive producer will also not return for a possible second season of CBS bowling comedy How We Roll, which he, of course, exec produced in season one. He continues to be repped by CAA. Up second. Number two. Stop me if you've heard this before in different segments on the TV's Top 5 podcast, but TNT and TBS are shifting their focus away from scripted originals. Well, Leslie, since this is stuff that we have talked about, and also that people can, you know, see if they look at the programming on TNT and TBS, what was new this week? Well, new this week is The Last OG, and it's actually technically not new. It's just the news came out this week, but The Last OG has been canceled after four seasons. That's the Tracy Morgan comedy that has had, well, four showrunners in four seasons. And of course, female lead Tiffany Haddish left the show ahead of season four. Um, the cancellation came actually late last year after season four wrapped in December. So that's new this week. And then the Damon Wayans Jr. comedy Kill the Orange-Faced Bear, which, of course, was a passion project for executives at TBS. They desperately wanted the show. It instead originally landed at Comedy Central. Comedy Central bailed on, on scripted originals for the most part. They still obviously, you know, don't, you know, they saw the other two go to HBO Max. A couple of things move uh, elsewhere. But, you know, this, of course, landed at TBS with a series order. They were days away from starting production. And then Warner Media, Warner Brothers Discovery executives pulled the plug on it. So what's going on here? Well, yeah, they're retreating from scripted. So that's kind of been the narrative for linear cable networks, for basic cable networks or ad-supported cable networks. Because in case we haven't mentioned it, doing scripted originals is really expensive, Dan. And it takes a lot of time and now the results are not always worth the money. And a lot of these shows, if they don't have streaming deals, get lost. I mean, look at what happened. You know, you on Lifetime was a great example. They renewed the show early for a second season before the show even launched. No one watched it. So they're like, well, we're not going to do season two anymore. We don't want this at all. Sold it to Netflix. And guess what? It blew up on Netflix and became a, a giant hit. So, yeah. So this is what's what's going on at, at Basic Cable Networks. And there was a variety story this week that said that they had stopped de buying development on, on scripted. That's honestly been the trend for the last few years. There have been a couple of e executive stories on THR written by me and then some on Deadline and other and other sites where you have execs at the network saying, yeah, we're still developing. We're still buying. We're still, you know, we still believe in linear, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. 
None of those shows have ever come to fruition. You know, there's a couple things that had been in the works and picked up straight to series that I think you're going to see move elsewhere in the coming days or weeks and months. And, you know, there still is a scripted roster at TBS. They have animated comedy American Dad, which was, of course, originally aired on Fox. That has been renewed through its 19th season in 2023. But it's also owned by 20th Television or Disney. So if they want to bail on that, I'm sure... Hulu would probably be overjoyed to have first-run episodes of American Dad. Meanwhile, you've got the upcoming fourth season of anthology Miracle Workers and the second season of Nassim Padrad comedy Chad. Those are probably the last that I checked in with execs over over there. Are, those are all still going to air on Linear first, but their futures beyond that, I'd be shocked to see any of them continue, at least on the Linear network. So as for who owns the rights or what those streaming deals are, I, I would imagine if there's a current streaming deal for them and it's and there's a price point that's worth moving it over as in a first run series, that'll probably happen or the shows will just go away or be shopped to other potential outlets. So then you've got t- over at TNT, Animal Kingdom has already been announced as having its final season. That's coming up later this year. That basically just leaves Snowpiercer alone on the train tracks at, at TNT. So if that has a streaming deal at HBO Max and performs well, I wouldn't be surprised to see that move to to Max as a first run original. And you know, we've been following kind of this this story about TBS and TNT for for a long time. You know, we did a, you know a what the bleep is going on with both networks back in episode 41, Dan, from October 2019, when we talked about how Snowpiercer was moved briefly to TBS and then back to TNT. And then all this other stuff has been going on, right? They had, um, what, what's that show that's old? They had a TNT drama with Lily Rabe and it was going to, it had been in work in the works for years. And now all of a sudden it moved, it was sold to Amazon for, as a first run. And, you know, this is not surprising that, that you're going to see, linear basic cable networks retreating from scripted because remember when USA had like 15 shows, 15 scripted originals. And now you you look and they have what one or two and they're anthologies or nobody knows. It's like, it's basically the same strategy that you're seeing over at, at Paramount, uh, Paramount network and some of these other places where it's like one big tentpole scripted thing. And then that's it. And it's like a big quarterly thing. Remember when MTV was doing originals, they, you know, and then they bailed on that. They announced so much more development and now they're like, oh, we're going to do bring Teen Wolf back. It'll be a movie. But now it's not even for MTV. It's for Paramount Plus. You know, it's it's that same thing. You know, basically, since we launched this podcast years ago, everything has been retreating from linear to streaming. So you look at the amount of scripted shows and even the pilots, you know, pilot season is a great barometer to see where things are on 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 linear and those that volume is way down. We talked about that a couple of months ago, right, when, at the start of pilot season. But yeah, the overall volume of scripted is decreasing on linear cable networks, and it is rising, continues to rise on streaming. Go back and look at the FX report that came out earlier this year. We hit another high with scripted originals last year. I don't know if that total will continue to be high this year. It, it depends a lot, I think, if Netflix continues to pull back on on its spending. But then you still have all these other companies, you know, doing more, right? You know, new fronts are next week. You're going to see some more series orders at, you know, these ad-supported streaming services and so forth. There's new streamers popping up every single day. You know, HBO Max continues to need content. Everyone else is, you know, we just talked, like, a, in, look in headlines. How many new series orders do we talk about every week in headlines? It's all there is always new new stuff and and the cancellations don't go hand in hand with how much more volume that they're adding. So 
it's it's interesting to see what what will happen. You know, we've heard for years that TBS will be a home for unscripted and TNT will continue to be a home for sports. That's really smart because a lot of that stuff you have to watch live if you want to participate and not and be part of that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising to see what's happening here with TNT and TBS. Dan, you know, bringing an end to this topic here, but do you remember when uh, Michael Wright was still running TBS and TNT? He's, of course, running Epics now, but they had a roster of so many scripted shows. It was like Rizzoli and Isles, these big, broad hits. And I just, do you remember how angry people were when Kevin Riley came in and axed all these, like, broad-skewing procedural things like Rizzoli and Isles? And in favor for a lot of these like niche comedies that people wound up, you know, canceling after a season or getting terrible reviews. And then there were a couple that that worked too, right? People of Earth and Wrecked. Yeah, those they they had some good stuff, you know, back in their day. Southland. They they absolutely did. And Men of a Certain Age, which I just watched what two years ago for the first time. I, it's it is definitely it is a changing of the guard. And and like you said, there are these places in which things are retreating and yet the overall volume somehow isn't which is very reflective of what an avalanche it is in the places that aren't retreating you know like the fact that we're in late april now and on this podcast we have dedicated so little time to broadcast pilot season is just reflective of how things have shifted in two years like i feel like in our first year of doing this, we were doing a different pilot season segment every couple weeks because there were pickups, you know, in the early in the winter, as there are every year. And then there was a whole wave of casting and it was the who are the big names that people are going to want and all of that. And it's gotten to the point I was where writing the, like 17 stories a day back in, you know, pre-pandemic pilot season. And of course, absolutely. the volume even right before the pandemic had started to slow, but it's fallen off a cliff. I mean, not like Netflix has, but comparable just the conversation is so is so different because back in the day it used to be my favorite thing that you did that nelly at uh, deadline did with the you know who are the most in demand names of pilot season and those conversations used to be so heated it was the who is ready to do television now who is thinking series tv is their next avenue and now of course there's basically absolutely no one who isn't ready to do television now they're just not ready to do it on broadcast tv they're ready to do and it no on... one's doing 22 episodes unless yeah. you're a legacy show like gray's anatomy or law and order and those shows are not landing your large movie stars coming to tv so the you know the splashy headlines are less splashy anyway it's all reflective of industry changes and we will talk more about this going forward because it is what we do number three up next speaking of Things that were a really, really big deal a couple of years ago and maybe now are a little bit less big deal. There was a major shakeup on a major Walking Dead spinoff this week. Break down the news, Leslie. Yeah, I remember since we're do taking a stroll down memory lane, uh, remember when The Walking Dead was the biggest show on the planet. Like the, the it was like, what, 15 or 20 million viewers uh, a week before DVR. It was just everywhere. You it was you couldn't escape it. And now, of course, the flagship is ending next year. They announced m multiple new spinoffs, including the planned Carol and Daryl spinoff starring Norman Reedus and Melissa McBride, except, well, now it's just going to be the Daryl spinoff because Melissa McBride is no longer attached. So sources say, and AMC supported this in a statement that when the show was originally picked up straight to series, 
there is no filming location planned. So that's a lot a way a, a lot of these things work, right? You know, pilots get a green light. They don't know where they're going to shoot. Sometimes they say, oh, we'll shoot in L.A. And then they get a star attached and they're like, this person really wants to do it, but they'll only shoot in New York. So they decide to, to move the filming location. Well, what happened here is executives decided to shoot the, the Carol and Daryl spinoff in Europe. And Melissa McBride, after who has spent a decade plus playing Carol and filming in Atlanta, said no, that's not something that she was willing to do. And and look, this isn't a new practice. This isn't an AMC decision. They, you know, based on whatever the creative was that they want to shoot there or whatever filming incentives they can get, or if they really want to make this show look completely different than some of these other Walking Dead shows have in the past. Whatever whatever forced the decision to shoot there, Melissa McBride laid down and said, or, you know, or sat down with execs and said, this is not something that is right for me in my life at this time. And for whatever reason that she made that decision, she made it, you know, and this is, as we've seen, you know, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people either don't want to go back to work, don't want to work in a certain state, or they don't want to be away from family, you know, and I'm not saying that's what happened here, but that's the trend that we've seen in the industry, right? You know, actors leaving shows because they don't want to film, you know, during the height of a pandemic or whatever the vaccination policies are, et cetera. You know, this is, and I'm not saying that, that Melissa McBride is anything to do with, you know, the COVID situation, but she she set a boundary. And that's honestly what this world is. You have to respect what, what someone's boundary is. She doesn't want to go shoot the show abroad or spend however many years, you know, filming this show. I mean, if this is going to run six seasons or 11 seasons like the flagship, that's a decade filming abroad. That's a decade away from her family, you know. So, yeah. So uh, anyway, sources say AMC is exploring other avenues to work with McBride. She has played Carol since the pilot. They, she and Norman Reedus were both recurring in season one before being bumped to two series regulars in season two. Of course, the big fan favorites between the two. It's like the friendship is fabulous on screen between the duo. They're good, obviously good and close friends off screen, too. So, yeah, I mean. There's continue to be other spinoffs in the works in the world of The Walking Dead. You've got the Tales of the Walking Dead anthology, the untitled Maggie and Negan offshoot starring Lauren Cohan and Jeffrey Dean Morgan, plus Fear the Walking Dead. You know, the later's current season features the return of original star Kim Dickens, who many viewers, including myself, believe to have been killed off. And then Lenny James as Morgan, who starred in the flagship before transferring over. So there are still multiple ways that AMC can continue to work with McBride. The biggest issue here from my vantage point is they've already wrapped shooting the flagship series finale. So whatever ending they had in mind for Carol that would lead in because the end of the flagship series was supposed to lead into the Carol and Daryl spinoff in 2023, they're going to have to figure out what to do there. So that's the big problem. Am I allowed to be somewhat skeptical or, or quizzical about this whole thing? The whole it's filming in Europe and that's why she left. I mean, sure. Uh, because I mean, I, you can be skeptical about anything, Dan. I'm not telling you how to feel. <laughs> it just it just doesn't make any sense to me as an explanation, because it's not as if there's a clear and organic reason why the story needed to be taken to Europe. I, I just can't imagine that it required a European location. What a Carol and Daryl spinoff required is Carol and Daryl. So it, to my mind, there obviously has to be something else. It can't be as simple as they sat down with her and said, yeah, we want to shoot in Europe. She said, I'd rather not do that. They said, okay. 
and that was it. Like, like I just can't, I can't imagine how that could be a solution. How how no one would be like, okay, well then let's try to find an alternative because again, there's no organic reason why this has to go shoot in Europe. So it's it's just a there has to be more to this story than this. Um, and there are any and you just listed 15 different reasons that are other reasons, you know, the the not wanting to commit to another six to 10 years, the the not feeling like it's a great pleasure to shoot in the current protocols that everyone is shooting in all of those reasons. It feels as if also she's yeah. played that character for oh. a decade. Why? I, I don't necessarily. Does she want to continue? You know, remember, you remember the Comic-Con panel? I mean, you don't because you, you weren't there. But I, <laughs> I remember the Comic-Con panel where Stephen Yun was sitting on the panel of, for, the, for Walking Dead and talking all about how the ticks of shooting in Atlanta and you're just co- constantly covered in ticks because everyone's dirty and dusty and sweaty. And that's what the show is. I mean, that sounds awful. And I can see. And that almost. And she's been doing that for 10 years. She's been picking ticks off for 10 years. No, I, I understand all of the reasons why she would not want to do it. I just don't think it's as simple as, yes, we want to shoot this show in Europe and her saying, yeah, I can't do that. And them saying, OK, we're moving on. I, there has to be more to it. And whatever. She 100 percent has the the right to say this is not what I want to be doing under whatever circumstances. She doesn't want to be doing it. Uh, everyone is entitled to go on with their lives and do other projects. Uh, it just seems like a, an odd explanation or an odd justification to me, but also it feels like a less odd justification than it would be if this were still six years ago. And as you say, if the show were still drawing 15 million viewers live each week, if this were still the biggest show in the universe, one would think that more accommodations would be needed to keep the brand alive. As it stands, they're obviously still planning on all of those different expansions that you just mentioned, just apparently not this one. So. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, McBride, like Norman Reedus, they have what's called franchise deals that they signed a couple of years ago that covered them for the flagship series and other potential spinoffs. So, look, would would I be surprised to see to see Melissa McBride get her own Walking Dead show and spinoff that will shoot at a location that's that's convenient for her? Not at all. That's what AMC is trying to do. Right. They want to keep they want to keep its crown jewel going with other popular spinoffs that, that viewers and fans want to, with characters that viewers and fans want to follow. And judging from the reaction on Twitter that I'm seeing, they definitely want to follow her. So, you know, let, let me hold my breath until that announcement. Anyway, up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Dustin Lance Black, whose new project is the FX adaptation of John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven for Hulu. An Oscar winner for his screenplay for Milk, Black's TV credits include Faking It, Big Love, and ABC's When We Rise. Thanks so much for joining us, Dustin. We're really happy to have you on, on the show. Oh, thanks for having me on this. It means a lot. So let's start back in 2011 when Under the Banner of Heaven was initially set up as a feature film with Warner Brothers. How long did you work on it then? What was your pitch? And then take us through what happened next. Once it was at Warner Brothers, uh, my first step was research. So I I probably spent nearly a year just uh, getting to know the real life people who are still around. Um, It was important to me though we had this fantastic property, uh, that I do my very best to get firsthand sources so that 
you, you know, I could fill in who these people were even more than what was in the book, which is a necessary part of bringing it to screen. That also meant getting to know Brenda Wright Lafferty's family, uh, which would lead to uh, them trusting me enough to share her journals with me and the letters she was writing during this entire um, horrific experience. And, and those were quite illuminating. In those letters, uh, and in those journals were things that were not in the book. Um, and the same held true for getting to know the Lafferty's, uh, going into Draper prison, spending time with Dan Lafferty, which was a quite a chilling, uh, experience. It, it was, it felt like quite a, a dangerous game of chess, but it felt important to me to get to know this man, um, not based on just what was in the books and what I had read, not not relying on the tropes of sociopathy to depict him, but to figure out who is the real person. What what kind of a person could step down this path of fundamentalism and, and end up shedding blood? Uh, that all of that felt very compelling and, and rich and and made for, you know, the pieces that would become the story, but there just wasn't room in a feature screenplay. There really wasn't room uh, in a hundred plus pages to create the experience the reader had in the book, which felt investigative, which, which demanded an active audience, uh, an active reader to be putting together the history of the church, um, with this crime in 1984, utilizing the history of the church's clues to solving this case in 1984. I didn't even have room in a feature screenplay to, to include the history, much less an investigation. So I failed, I would say for, you know, a good three, four years, I would continually try new versions of a, a feature screenplay that just did not accomplish um, that, that narrative that demanded an audience's full attention, where they get to play the detective, that thing that's so satisfying when you're reading the book. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I admit that I, I did fail, and I failed for a very long time. So how did the project and what you wanted to say with it change when FX came in and it became a limited series where you had this bigger canvas on which to ex explore all of the topics that you were just saying you had no room for in, in a feature script? Yeah, it was a really exciting phone call I got from Brian Grazer, who, who first said to me, hey, this, the miniseries, the limited series is, is a legitimate form now. Um, it's not right. It's, and, and, you know, it, because it hadn't been for so long and here we were in a place where you could tell a dramatic story in more than two hours. Uh, I, I thought, boy, if I had, you know, seven, eight, nine hours, I could potentially tell the Lafferty story. So 1979 to 1984, that is the crime. I could include the history that's pertinent to, to understanding that case from the 19th century the history of the Mormon church. It also meant I was going to have room to create something new uh, that's not in the book. Though it's in the spirit of the book, it's in the read of the book. It feels like an investigation as you're reading the book. Well, now I could create that investigation, utilizing the bones of the story of how the investigation actually unfolded, but creating two uh, original characters whose eyes we'd experience it through. And, um, that meant creating a mainstream Mormon detective who likely had never asked the questions he was going to need uh, to have answers to, to solve this case. 
Uh, you're not supposed to ask those questions as an active Mormon. Uh, and so, but I had room for that now, for that experience. I still felt that I needed kind of every man eyes on it as well, the outsider, someone who was not Mormon. And so that was the creation that led to the creation of, uh, of Bill Tapa, who Gil Birmingham plays, um, who is not Mormon, but as a Paiute, his family would have grown up in this area. They have roots in this area that, that predate uh, any Mormons in the Salt Lake Valley. And I found it very interesting to create a character who is outside of Mormondom, who feels outside of the, the, the culture and society in a place that his forefathers and foremothers called home. Now I felt like I could. There was a chance, at least, with, this, with, with many more pages at my disposal to recreate at least the feeling and the spirit and the heartbeat uh, that you feel when you're reading the book. So, so now that you've closed the door, you've written everything, obviously you're, you're in post on this, you know, how close is the finished TV series to what you originally wanted to do with the feature in terms of what you have wanted to say with this as a larger piece? That is always such a tough question to answer because it's always different. Uh, and I think um, it's probably very rare that the thing that ends up on the screen matches what you had imagined, particularly 10 years ago, I've changed, I've grown, I hope I've developed uh, and become a better writer uh, than the things that I thought would have been important 10 years ago. Um, I, uh, I think when you cast the actors in these roles, because I try not to imagine who would play these roles, when you cast these artists, they're going to bring themselves to it as well. I think that's very true of Andrew Garfield and Gil Birmingham. Um, and so in, in some ways it's even better than what I had imagined originally in many ways it is. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly I hope it feels more personal, um, uh, than, than particularly in the Lafferty story with, with Brenda Wright. I hope, I hope you feel an intimacy to her, uh, that I didn't necessarily know I could capture in the feature version. Um, I, I hope it got better. Uh, it is it is definitely different, and but I think that's a part of the process. And and and, and I, I do think that if you, you know, if you calcify too early in a film or television show, you lose the opportunity of uh, you know to make discovery. And we did a lot of that in the in when we were writing, uh, and and certainly in production. Uh, grappling with your own faith has been a frequent theme both in your work and in interviews you've given, especially over the years uh, with Proposition 8 in California, which sought to ban same-sex marriage. Have there been periods in your life when Under the Banner of Heaven would have been a story that you specifically couldn't have told, you think, that you wouldn't have wanted to tell because it was too close, because it was too raw? No. Um, I think it is exactly what I like to do. It's what I encourage my friends uh, and, or students uh, who are writers to do, which is, you, you know, write from your lived experience, or as some people say, write what you know. Um, it takes a little courage to dig into the things in your own history that are painful, and, and certainly this qualifies. Um, it's not easy. Uh, I, I do expect a great deal of pushback 
Uh, I've seen some of that uh, is, is coming up now, and, and, and I had to be ready for that. I understand that this show is asking questions that are going to make many people very uncomfortable um, in the Mormon faith and in others, uh, because this is certainly the criticisms here and the concerns here are certainly not exclusive to Mormondom. Um, but this is what we should be doing, I think. I mean, unless you believe that we have reached the perfection of society, uh, this is what we should be doing. Um, and if you've had a lived experience that points out injustice, don't we have an obligation? Don't we have an obligation to shine light on that injustice, to try and crack it open, to try and create that, what I say, that good chaos that smashes things so that they can come together better? Um, I, I, I think a lot of this uh, just comes from having been raised by a very strong Mormon mother who taught me very early on. Uh, that we have an obligation to help our our neighbors, um, and in this case, um, I've I've questioned for a very long time the treatment of women within this this faith I was raised in, and and this needed some good chaos uh, so we could get to the bottom of it and perhaps see a better path. When you look at the series that's actually premiering, do you see kind of? to some degree where you are on your spiritual journey? And does that feel different than it might have been 10 years ago if, if it had been made as a movie? Yes. I'm a different person now. So uh, that, that answer has to be yes. Um, you know, I, I think there was a, for a very long time there, I wanted to um, give a pass to people of faith because I still saw the, the great good in, um, in some of what comes of uh, organized faith. And, um, you know, now, now I, 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 I just see it quite differently. Uh, there's, I don't see the idea of being a cafeteria Christian as a bad thing. I actually now see that as wisdom. Um, and, uh, and, and I would take it as a compliment, uh, meaning I feel now that I'm able to see what is good about belief and faith and doubt, frankly. Um, but I also feel very comfortable um, being quite critical of the corners of faith, and particularly this religion, um, uh, that need to be worked on, uh, that I can, I can do both at once. And, and I think I wasn't at that place 10 years ago. I want to go back to what you were saying about talking to as many of the principles from the book as you could. What are their, you know, I don't want you to speak for all of them on, you know, across the board level, but what are their feelings about the book? And when you come to these people who have told this very difficult, rough story in such a high profile way previously, is their first reaction to you? Yeah, we've done that already. We don't want to go back in. And how do you confront that yourself? There, that's a great question. There, there. I would say that, and it, this might be surprising, that both uh, Brenda Wright Lafferty's family and Dan Lafferty both like the book and see it as accurate and honest. Um, and that is a testament to John Krakauer when it comes to uh, Brenda's family and the work that he did to try and get it right. And it's also incredibly chilling that Dan Lafferty uh, would see this as accurate and something that he would stand behind still today. And, and that's what I found when I was sitting with him 
in Draper Prison, looking him in the eye. Um, many a time he want, I needed a lot, I needed many more details than what he had shared in the book in order to, you know, create this seven part mini series. I needed to know more about him and his family and where he came from and, and what they did, uh, who they were. Um, but he always see often wanted to step back into the crime itself. He wanted to describe the bloodshed himself. And I could tell he was taking joy in that. And, um, and, and, and so it was the book that helped me uh, not let him enjoy that yet again by saying to him, is there anything in John Krakauer's book that you object to that was not accurate when it comes to these murders? And he would smile and say, no, 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 John got it right. And I said, well, then I don't need to hear it from you again. Uh, I didn't want to give him that pleasure. Um, and um, so, you know, they it, it, surprisingly, they seem to see all see value in the book. Um, I think it was very painful for Brenda's family to step back into this, but I made them the assurance, uh, which was very easy to make, that this story would be a testament to Brenda Wright Lafferty's courage. And that it was simply the courage of curiosity, it was the courage of challenging the status quo. And, and I, they, they, they seemed to understand um, that that was still a necessary message um, that we needed to. And they're active Mormons, mainstream Mormons, but they seem to very much understand that a conversation still needs to be had about how women's voices are heard within this faith. Uh, and, and so they've, they've, I know this must be incredibly painful for them. I've, I've talked to um, some of the members of her family um, in the past several days, and, uh, and I know it's painful. I know it's difficult, but they do seem to see the value in having this conversation, and I, I have to thank them for that. Krakauer is not a, a Mormon. For you, as you're going through the book, did you find that your perspective or your interest was markedly different from his at any point as a result of your own background? Yes. And John and I had those conversations 10 years ago uh, when we first optioned his book. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that the fact that I grew up Mormon and that I still had warmth towards my family in the Mormon church, that I still remember some of what was so valuable about having grown up in that faith, that was meaningful to John as well. I, I, he knew that I was not going to be coming at it um, you know, in a way that I would subject the mainstream Mormon characters to the stereotypes and slurs I heard growing up as a kid. You know, when I was a little boy, because we were military, I wasn't in Utah. I was in Texas as a Mormon. And I was, you know, so I was very much a minority. And I would be called a pliggy at school. People would ask where all my moms were. And and that was really hard. It was hard because I, I it, mostly it was hard. I didn't understand it. We're not taught any of that as children in the Mormon faith. Uh, so it was really hurtful. And, and I, I, I think John knew I wouldn't do that. Um, and, and, I, and, you know, I, I think it's important that the distinctions are drawn in this series, that there are different kinds of Mormons. There are mainstream Mormons who follow the modern day prophet. Um, there are uh, cultural Mormons who might not even go to church every Sunday, but they still appreciate the, the, the culture of Mormonism, the adherence to the golden rule, that family comes first. 
And then there are fundamentalist Mormons who follow the very early texts of the faith. Uh, and they do that to the letter. Um, and, you know, and, and we see that that can be quite dangerous. These are three distinctly different groups. And let me be honest, there's more than that. Um, and I thought it was important that we, that I created characters who could help, you know, non-Mormon audiences understand those distinctions. And that, that was not just important because it was the right thing to do. It's also important because I think we're in a time in the world right now where a lot of people are having a tough time and they're stepping back towards fundamentalism. They're stepping from a mainstream perspective, a forward-looking perspective, uh, back to original texts, whether that's the Constitution or the Bible or Book of Mormon. And uh, this is that cautionary tale to say a mainstream person can step back towards fundamentalism, and it is not going to be a road back to some glory day. That is a road uh, to danger, a road that could lead to great harm and even bloodshed. You know, those rules are dusty. Those rules were written by men a very long time ago when we did not know better. You know, we know better now. We know the harm that is caused by some of those outdated rules. So yes, cafeteria Christian, take what still might work, but it's time to leave the rest behind. And by creating those distinctions between various kinds of Mormons, you understand that, that there is a path from mainstream belief to fundamentalist belief. And hopefully you begin to understand how incredibly dangerous that is. It's a cautionary tale for today and tomorrow in that way. When you're writing this, how separate do your educator hat and your storyteller hat feel? And are there specific times when it was hard to reconcile the intersection of those two objectives? Yeah, you know, it's, that, it's, a, it's a huge challenge in this show because Mormonism uh, is not a well-understood faith. I can't tell you how many people have gotten it mixed up with being, say, Amish or Quaker it's not those things. Uh, you know, they, people just don't know. And in order to solve this crime, you have to know. You have to understand what Mormonism was in 1984. You also have to understand what Mormonism was in the 19th century. So there was a lot of work that had to be done and information that had to be shared. Um, in order for Jeb Pyrie to solve this investigation, in order for the audience, because let's be clear, Jeb Pyrie, as a mainstream Mormon, also would not have known these things. He would have been encouraged not to ask these questions in church. You know, the saying is to doubt your doubts, to put your questions on the shelf. So the audience needs to know this information. Jeb Pyrie needs to know this information. So, you know, it, it's why, particularly in the first two episodes, you're going to get a lot of information. Um, and uh, if you don't like learning a whole lot, it ain't going to be the show for you. I'm sorry to say, you know, uh, it's, uh, you are, I hope in service of solving a crime, going to learn an awful lot about a religion that has been shrouded in mystery for a very long time. I find it very compelling. Uh, I also find it very honest to what an investigation feels like. And thankfully we had, um, actors who in interrogation rooms could, could bring these scenes to life in a way where yes, it's exposition. But I dig it. I like this exposition. Well, when you're giving that exposition and you know that it's that a lot of the stuff is probably going to 
shock or at least surprise an audience who doesn't know it. How do you avoid cultural rubbernecking? And are there points at which you felt comfortable kind of gawking at all of this that was happening? Well, to me, I can't really tell what would qualify as cultural rubbernecking because it's in me. Um, uh, to me, it's, you know, a lot of this is a given. Um, and, and I, I listened to readers when it was a script and now, and, and, and viewers when we were doing the edit to, to find out what was most shocking, um, and surprising. Um, but in terms of, as I was crafting it, as I was writing it, uh, no, I just wanted to provide all of the information that, uh, Jeb would need to solve the crime, uh, and also, we have a second investigator who's not Mormon, so he's also going to need to be armed with this information to keep himself safe. This is uh, in the true history of the crime. Uh, you know, there was this question of who did it, and we solved that pretty quickly. The, the question then becomes, why did they do it? Uh, and solving that will help you get to where are they now? Because w the investigators in real life and in the show discovered that there was a list of more people to be blood atoned. So there was this ticking clock. Um, uh, so, you know, if, if something sounds extreme in what I am sharing from uh, the Mormon history and the Mormon faith, uh, well, that's because these brothers turned to some very extreme uh, passages from their, uh, you know, their own history and from the words of their early prophets in order to rationalize these crimes. So if it sounds extreme, it's because these brothers did some very extreme things in the name of God and under the banner of heaven. Going back to your time on Big Love, which I guess would have been 15 or 16 years ago, does it feel like you still need to spell out the same things for mainstream audiences, for secular audiences about distinctions of different Mormon subgroups of fundamentalist versus mainstream, et cetera. And, and what does it mean that 15 years after a, a fairly big show that people did talk about extensively, that these conversations need to be recirculated and re-asked again, do you think? Well, I, you know, I, I treasure my time on Big Love. Um, you know, it's where I cut my teeth as a writer. I had Mark Olson and Will Sheffer were our showrunners and uh, were about the best parents in a way I could have ever asked for uh, in growing as a writer. Um, they had a particular challenge with that show because the tone was supposed to be loving and at times light. And, and so it was really a look at a very small slice of what fundamentalist Mormonism could be, right? The neighborhood fundamentalist, not the compound fundamentalist. You know, it was a, there was much less we could look at and stay in that tone. And, and I had felt then um, that there was more I wanted to say and needed to say because my experience with uh, the faith did not feel like that. And my experience of the faith, frankly, was not fundamentalist. Uh, so this is a different perspective. Um, and, one, and one that I think will you know, light up some conversations that we need to have that, that wouldn't have been um, lit up by a big love in that tone. 
you know, uh, just to move on a little bit, you know, your your last project before this was When We Rise, ABC's LGBTQ rights miniseries, which, you know, you made right on the cusp of, of this current moment of star-studded limited series. You know, have you given a thought to how five years later that story might be told differently in the current TV landscape? When We Rise. Yes. I would. Uh, yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, listen, I am. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm going to say something that probably get me in trouble. I, I'm never, a, I, I'm never a very big fan of my work. Um, I, I, you know, it tears me up uh, when I have to lock picture and send it in. There's always the things that I wish we could have done differently, and you know, this holds true even for Milk, which has been, you know, embraced in such warm fashion. It's hard for me to watch. Um, I. Uh, yeah, I, I would do a lot different on When We Rise, but that holds true for, for most everything that I've done. Um, I will say that I had a very strong creative partner um, with Under the Banner of Heaven in John Landgraf. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the creative conversations he and I were able to have about this, the patience that he had so that it did develop. Uh, it, it had the time and the room and the space to develop you know, that was incredibly valuable. And that was one thing that was missing. It was just a very different system at ABC and different time. Um, yeah. So. yeah, broadcast versus cable when you're not, you know, beholden to fall schedules and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, you know, you also learn more when you put something out. Uh, and, and there were uh, some criticisms of when we rise that I had to take to heart. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I know better now than I did then, so I would do it differently now. Uh, I hope that's, you know, I think that's healthy as a creative. But it, it's rare that you get a writer, showrunner to, to get on the air at Hollywood Reporter and admit that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know, we're, we're also part having a conversation now, and we've been having this conversation for a long, long time, about who has the right to play what roles, right? You know, uh, how do you specifically feel about that? Like when you're looking back at, at something like Milk, which was an incredibly powerful, you won an Oscar for, for the screenplay for it. And you gave an incredible speech at the Oscars upon winning. Um, I will never forget it. I cried. It was incredible. Just so powerful and so moving. But when you look back, Sean Penn is playing the founder of the gay rights movement. And Sean Penn is not a member of the LGBTQ community. So if you were making the Harvey Milk biopic now, is, is Sean, would Sean Penn have gotten that role today? Uh, very likely, no. I mean, even then, uh, the, the producers and director and I, we, we first went to um, agents and said, who do you have that's openly gay or willing to come out to play this role. Um, that was, those were really hard conversations back then. You have to dial yourself back to 2007, uh, 2008. And, um, and those agents and managers came back and said, oh, we don't have any queer people on our roster. And in some instances, I knew that wasn't true. I'd had drinks with some of them at like the Abbey. Um, you know, so I, it was a very different time. And, you know, Thank goodness we've come to a time where we have so many more openly queer uh, actors. And, uh, and, and I do think it's incredibly valuable, particularly when portraying a minority, 
uh, to have someone step into those shoes who has that lived experience uh, to, you know, it's, um, they are going to bring that lived experience to the role. They will help deepen it. Um, they will help make it feel more authentic, which in the end makes it more moving, I think, and, and more illuminating. We didn't have that option. It was hard. Um, you know, we were able to, 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 to flip uh, things and we cast all openly gay actors to play the heterosexual people in Milk, if you, if you go through that checklist of supporting actors. But, um, but I, I, we're in a different place now and I'm, I'm very happy about that. I, I must also say, though, uh, you know, Sean Penn stepping into that role, and this may sound very strange, whatever it is, 13, 14 years later, that took courage for him as well. That wasn't, this, that wasn't a time where it was just an easy slam dunk. Hey, I'm just going to get a lot of praise for playing an openly gay politician. This was still rather untested territory. And, um, and, and you know, I, to those who have been critical of him, it's not, I don't think that's fair. I think you have to consider the time. Uh, and, and I'd love to share just how curious he was, meaning he understood he didn't have that lived experience. He asked an many, many questions, devoured research, and made sure he surrounded himself with openly gay people who he could ask questions of, um, which he did, um, and, uh, and to get it as authentic as possible. And that he was doing that day by day by day, having those conversations to get it as right as possible. Um, but we're in a new time now. Things will be different now. And I think that's good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember talking to you years and years ago when you made this great um, documentary called Eight, The Mormon Proposition, which is obviously during all of California's Prop 8, when I think everyone in the community was marching in the streets at some point or another. Um, you know, looking at how that landscape has changed, to your point about, you know, Milk and Sean Penn, but, you know, we've seen shows like Transparent and more recently Pose. Where do you help hope that LGBTQ stories go next on, on film and television? What's the next frontier? The next frontier, it's like, to me... There's so much to do. I, I, it's, it's a, there's a massive mosaic that has to be created, recreated, excavated, however, however you want to put it, to, to portray LGBTQ lives, our foremothers, our forefathers, uh, all of this history that has been covered up and erased. You know, we're just now starting to portray our foremothers and our forefathers. There's, there are so many people beyond just Harvey Milk and now, you know, Bayard Rustin and all of the people who are starting to see these stories be told about. There are so many more and we need them. So to me, we're just starting to kind of polish off the little stones and place them, you know, into the grout that will become the mosaic of our story. And that's important because, you know, LGBTQ kids for the most part, are not raised in queer homes. They don't have, uh, and no fault of the parents, but they don't often have parents who understand what it's going to take to survive as a, as a minority in that way. Uh, and so we need this, this popularized media uh, that help tell our stories so that young people knew that there were many brave people uh, who risked their lives to fight for freedom, and for justice, uh, 
that we we have today and that we need more of later. They, there were people fighting for these queer young lives today a very long time ago, and we haven't built that history back. We have to build it back. I want to sort of go from that and go back to Under the Banner of Heaven quickly. The setting of the miniseries, and obviously the historical events it's based on, in 1984 kind of allows for the possibility that audiences can look at this and go, this is a thing that's in the past. This is a thing that's, you know, 30, however many years ago, and now clearly things are are different. How did you want to make sure that you personally bridged the gap between this was something that's 30 years older, but here are the things you need to know about what's happening in the LDS church now, both positively and negatively going forward? Uh, you know, I mean, I think that's the work that I, we have to do now. That's those, I hope that this, the, the series, you know, creates the space for that kind of a conversation. Um, doing this with you, talking about it right now with you, I can say I can make the connection between uh, a group of boys who stepped into fundamentalist uh, Mormonism in 1984 and make the connection between a world that's doing the same in many ways. Take a look at the Supreme Court right now, stepping back to originalist interpretations of a document written hundreds of years ago exclusively by white men dangerous. Look at, look at how the world is, step, is beginning to rationalize um, war based on maps drawn hundreds and thousands of years ago. We're stepping dangerously into uh, a, a place where we're letting the past guide our future, and that's dangerous. So this conversation will do that. Um, as far as the Mormon church goes, I don't doubt they're going to raise their hand and say, hey, things have changed, things have changed, and, and to say the things that have changed, good, Good. I want them to own the things that are different now. But I also know that when we see the list of things that changed, there's going to be a lot that's missing. This is not exclusive to Mormonism. That, that there is a faith that treats women second class to men. That believes there's a God who created women in, to be this inferior thing. That's nonsense. And we know that now. So let's have that conversation now. And I, I would urge the church that in the same way uh, they did in 1978 and had a, there was a revelation to the prophet that the church should no longer be racist. I urge them to, to search their souls and perhaps there is a revelation in this quote unquote ever changing church that God should no longer be a misogynist. You know, I, 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 some things have changed. But it's, we're not there yet. Uh, and, and so I, I hope Mormons and the Mormon church uh, looks into its soul and thinks about what it's done, thinks about what the great harm that can be caused when you teach children that God is a misogynist. But I hope that other faiths look at themselves and realize they're doing the same. I'm sorry, but where are all the women in the priesthood in the Catholic church? This isn't exclusive to Mormonism. Well, we are running, sadly, running short on time, but uh, I do want to talk about, you know, you spent a decade plus working on Under the Banner of Heaven. Now that it's it's come to fruition, you're almost done with it. What's next for you? Uh, 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 some sleep, I hope. <laughs> uh, a cocktail on the beach in Barcelona uh, with my husband and kid. And, uh, you know, I, um, I, I need to take a little breath on the other side of this. I have some things that I'm finishing. Um, 
there's a musical I've been working on that I'm excited for the, the world to, to see. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I wasn't able to be involved in, in the Bayard Rustin film that I helped uh, bring to life and, and write. And, uh, and so I'm curious to see how they're doing on that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't just leap into things because I think they're going to be entertaining. I want them to be entertaining. I hope Under the Banner of Heaven is chilling. I hope it feels like a true crime thriller at times. I, but I, but I, 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 I got to say, I, I wouldn't do it if it didn't feel like it had the potential to move the needle even a little bit. And, uh, and so finding those projects that can be both entertaining and, um, and, and that ask the tough questions that can maybe lead to some progress, you know, those don't come along all the time. So it might take me a minute again, uh, to, to do, to do another, I, I, I don't feel the pressure to have, you know, two shows come out of here. It's not my style. Yeah. Well, we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying aside from cuts of your own show? Well, I'll tell you the, uh, the number one thing in our household, and, and, and I actually think it's one of the greatest uh, sociological studies of our time, the, one, the most emotionally inspiring shows uh, I've ever watched uh, that I am addicted to, and it's what we see in our home almost every day, and that is RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, <laughs> I love that show. I admire RuPaul deeply. And it's so tonally different than anything I would ever do that it feels like a lovely escape uh, from all the darkness that's been in this show. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't know if I could have completed Under the Banner of Heaven if it wasn't for um, RuPaul and, and Michelle Visage. I think I can say that, honestly. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks, Daniel. Under the Banner of Heaven premiered Thursday on Hulu. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Dan, you've got a ton to choose from. You just heard our interview with Dustin Lance Black about Under the Banner of Heaven. Paramount Plus goes behind the scenes of The Godfather with The Offer. Made for Love returns for season two on HBO Max. Apple launches Shining Girls. Season two of Undone arrives on Amazon. Grace and Frankie, as well as Ozark, both say farewell on Netflix. And Showtime debuts, I love that for you. Dan, you got your hands full, my friend. I do indeed. That is, that is once again, a lot of television and keeping up with it is, is really tough. And so I haven't, for example, watched a second of I Love That For You. Um, I, I hope to at some point because I like the people involved, but... <laughs> Yeah, no time. I also haven't watched any of Grace and Frankie. I feel, I mean, I've watched some of Grace and Frankie, but I haven't watched any of Grace and Frankie in four or five seasons. So definitely, if you were holding your breath waiting for my review of Grace and Frankie, I, I don't know what to tell you. Why were you doing that? Come on. Anyway, <laughs> let's let's start, not necessarily with the best of the options, uh, with the offer on Paramount. Plus, it is created by Michael Tolkien. Well, it's created by Michael Tolkien. It's developed by Michael Tolkien and Leslie Grief. If you go and watch episodes, I have never seen the kind of crediting that Michael Tolkien gets on the offer. There are episodes of the offer where he has six consecutive credits. 
like on the last title cards where he is credited as executive producer, as co-developer, as creator, he gets a story by credit and he gets multiple writing credits because they're partnerships. So it's Michael Tolkien and somebody and Michael Tolkien and somebody else. It's a crazy assortment of cre- of crediting that he has. And it's kind of amusing and appropriate because, of course, the entire thing is about the making of The Godfather. And you think, OK, it's about the making of The Godfather. So it's going to be about Francis Ford Coppola and it's going to be about uh, Marlon Brando. And it's going to be about maybe it's going to be about Robert Evans. And because you love the kid stays in the picture, you're like, yeah, that's what I want. No, it's about Al Ruddy, who was the producer. And it's very much about the strange things that producers do and what the job is. And, you know, it's not uninteresting. And the production on The Godfather was fascinating. But what it is, is it's a Wikipedia entry brought to life. That is that is just what it is. It's 10 hours and they're full hours. And that is inexcusable. There was no way under any circumstances that this should have been a 10-hour anything. Paramount Plus needed to say, six hours is just fine, thank you very much. Uh, there have been talks for a long time about a potential movie version of the same story with Oscar Isaac as Francis Ford Coppola, and that would be just a feature film. And guess what? Perfectly fine to have this as a feature film-like story. What hurts is that roughly half of the story relates to the actual organized crime, Mafia, Cosa Nostra, whatever you want to call it, their reactions to The Godfather. And that stuff is is just, it's horrible. It's kind of B-rate Sopranos, no, C-rate, D-rate. I'm Like, I'm grading it too high, whatever it is. It's, it's very, very bad. You have Giovanni Ribisi playing Joe Colombo, who is real and did protest against The Godfather. Uh, Giovanni Ribisi's performance, try watching it and not thinking that you're watching a bargain basement version of Sling Blade. It is such a strange performance. And really, the miniseries is littered with strange performances and miscasting and weirdnesses. Um, Like Justin Chambers from Grey's Anatomy plays Marlon Brando and wow, does he not tap into the things that make Marlon Brando interesting and charismatic as a performer. It is it is a strangely lifeless performance, and yet it's kind of presented as a thing you're supposed to be amused by. Uh, Miles Teller plays Al Ruddy, and he's okay, and he has a lot of scenes with Juno Temple, who plays Al Ruddy's assistant, um, and... She's the only capable female in the story, and Juno Temple is good. You have Dan Fogler as Francis Ford Coppola. You have a lot of people. I, I think that probably Matthew Good as Robert Evans stands out. He doesn't look much like Robert Evans. He's way too tall, and I kind of wonder if they figured that because initially it was Army Hammer who was cast as Al Ruddy, if because Army Hammer is a gigantic person. They figured that he could stand next to Matthew good and he wouldn't look as way too tall as he does. Uh, but, but then for some reason, something happened with army hammer and he, and he isn't in this anymore. And I don't know why anyway. So yes, replaced by miles Teller, which, and that also already gives you an idea of the level of authenticity. If you are casting a main role and you're figuring that that main role can be played either by army hammer or miles Teller, 
you're not really caring about the specifics of anything. You're just saying, eh, whatever. <laughs> who, who cares? And there's a lot of this that feels like that. It is, it is full of clumpy, clunky dialogue. It's full of things that feel as if they're kind of urban legends, but someone just said, okay, sure, we'll put that there along with the things that are documentable. Um, I never found it unwatchable, and that is not an insignificant thing because I watched 10 hours of it over two days last weekend, and that was a lot. Um, but yeah, it, it just isn't very good. At times, it's conspicuously bad. I never found it boring, but you just have to accept that it's kind of trash, and that's too bad because why would you make a 10-hour trash behind-the-scenes story of the making of one of the greatest movies ever made. It's it's just sort of a letdown on on every turn. Uh, speaking of limited series that are already out and available to watch, you just heard our interview with uh, Dustin Lance Black. Under the Banner of Heaven is is really effective. It is It gets under your skin almost immediately. Uh, Andrew Garfield is very, very good. The true crime aspect of it is just... It's just interesting and intriguing and the way that it uses the world of 1980s Mormonism to tell the story is consistently intriguing. I wasn't always as convinced with the back and forth structure between the true crime aspect and the historical aspects, but I still found them worthy of consideration. And again, it's, it's a really good cast. So you start with Andrew Garfield. You have Daisy Edgar Jones, who I, I really like. You have, um, God, Wyatt Russell, who's giving a really good, intense performance. You've got Christopher Heyerdahl, who's who's kind of terrifying as a Mormon patriarch. Gil Birmingham is always sturdy and interesting. Uh, Adelaide Clemens, who was one of my favorites from Rectify, is good. It, it's just got a good feeling. It gets under your skin and it mixes the sort of visceral scares of a thriller with some thoughtful stuff. I, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty solid and I've watched three and a half episodes ran out of time. I am looking forward to watching more continuing along. Apple TV plus has shining girls, which is based on a novel by Lauren Bucus. And I was pretty sure that this was a limited series until it turned out that it's apparently a drama. Uh, who knew? I, I don't completely understand why. The book is fairly close-ended, and the series is reasonably close-ended. The book is very different from the series, and so the thing that I would use to describe the book is presented as a surprise in the series, which makes it hard to describe what's happening. The basics are that Elizabeth Moss plays a young, aspiring journalist who six years earlier was left for dead after a violent attack. She begins to suspect that the violent attack might not have been random and that the killer, who's played here by uh, Jamie Bell, is still at work. She enlists the help of one of her reporting colleagues, uh, played by Wagner Mara, and she begins to investigate. But what's tricky or strange is that her reality is shifting as she goes along. She suddenly discovers her desk is in different places. She suddenly has different haircuts. She goes home and she has a husband, which she didn't have before. What's happening to her reality? Is it psychological and all about victimization, or is something supernatural happening? Well, something supernatural or extra natural is certainly happening. I can't explain it to you because it's a surprise. 
but it's interesting. And I think that the series handles it in ways that are actually much more thorough than the way that the book handles a lot of those twisty genre elements. What I would say is that the book kind of has a propulsive forward momentum that the series maybe doesn't have because the series is more interested in actually being a character portrait. Well, okay, if you're interested in the character portrait, and thanks to Elizabeth Moss, who's fantastic, you always can be interested in it. But you also still might be wanting some of the more plot mechanics, and the series isn't as good at plot. So that's just something to to keep in mind, is that you're going to have a lot of questions that either aren't going to be answered or aren't going to be answered to your satisfaction, and you just have to kind of accept that. Sometimes satisfaction is overrated. Speaking of, final season of Ozark. I watched seven episodes of that, and because it's Ozark, seven episodes means seven and a half hours, eight hours, because four of the seven episodes are longer than an hour. The simplest thing I can say about the final season of Ozark by way of a review without spoiling anything is that it's basically Ozark. <laughs> and anyone who who knows me knows that my interest in Ozark is entirely variable. And sometimes I hate the show. Sometimes I like the show. Mostly I like the show because I think Julia Garner and Laura Linney are, are really, they're top notch. Whatever's happening around them, I have never begrudged Julia Garner her Emmys that she's won. I've never begrudged Laura Linney her nominations because I think they're both great. I've absolutely begrudged uh, Jason Bateman his acting nominations and just one of those things. He he really has gone a four-season show and delivered every single line with the exact same slightly quizzical tone of voice for four seasons. There is no variation to that character or that performance in four seasons. And that matches the washed-out underlit visuals of the series. And it's all just a confusing thing because it is this show that has at every turn resisted the opportunity to have fun with anything in its premise. It has always taken itself too seriously. And guess what? The final season does that as well. The finale, I think, is an appropriate ending to the series. And I don't necessarily mean that as a compliment in any way, shape, or form. So because I had to watch seven episodes of Ozark and write a review, that meant I didn't get to finish watching or write a review of the second season of Undone, which is a show that I really like quite a bit more. I think Undone is actually a really good companion show at this point to a lot of shows with that have played around with reality lately, whether it's uh, Russian Doll. You can hear our great interview from last week with Natasha Leone about the second season of Russian Doll um, or the aforementioned Shining Girls. Undone, I think, is a really, really good show. And the second season, which I've seen five of eight episodes of, is probably more plot driven than the first. The first was kind of a here's this wacky outlandish premise and now reality is going weird and crazy, and this is how we're using the rotoscope animation, etc. The second season, the point I've gotten to after five episodes, I can tell with certainty it's about to go haywire, but it has not gone haywire yet. And I think that makes it pretty easy to jump in, and if you don't necessarily remember where the first season was, you can follow along pretty quickly. The animation continues to be great. I think that even with the animation, you can still see the performances by Rosa Salazar, by Bob Odenkirk, by Angelique Cabral. 
et cetera. And I think you can see how actual performances underneath the rotoscoping are really informing that show. Uh, the show is thoughtfully created by uh, former podcast guest Raphael Bob Waxberg and Kate Purdy. And I think that they are they have big things on their mind. And I think it's an interesting show. And so this is sort of in lieu of an actual review of it. My telling you, it continues to be a good show. So breaking down all of the week's stuff, you can skip the offer, but you don't necessarily need to just know that it's kind of crappy and have fun with it on its own terms and accept that in a world of good shows, it's not one of those and focused on a great movie and it's not great. It's kind of awful, but it can be fun. I prefer Under the Banner of Heaven, which is confusing in its own way because it's FX's Under the Banner of Heaven, but it is only available on Hulu because FX on Hulu doesn't exist anymore. But it is on Hulu. It was produced by FX, and it's pretty good. Shining Girls on Apple TV+, Plus, Elizabeth Moss, great, worth watching for that. Ozark signs off on Ozark Terms. Take that as you will. And I really like Undone still. Season two of Undone continues to be pretty strange and pretty special stuff. <gasps> Deep sigh. All done. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms that allows you to get things like our special Pamela Adlon episode a little bit early, which is always nice. So subscribe. If you like us, be sure to rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Help spread the word of mouth in some way that I can't truly quantify, but I promise you it does. As I've already said once on this podcast, come say hi to us on Twitter. Let us know what's working, what isn't working who you'd like to see on future showrunner standalones, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we'll see, maybe we'll get to one of those in the next couple of weeks. Hard to tell. We could always use more questions. You could email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>